you would now turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Again, that is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. <clears throat> Please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. And, the angel of, and to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, and I have prospered, and I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, to that, so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would bless this time. We ask that you would bless your word. We ask that you would teach, teach us <coughs> this morning. Lord, we ask that you would... Again, put away the distractions of this week, the distractions of what is coming up. And Father, we would focus upon you. We ask that we would hear a word from you, the true and living God, and not a word from me. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been chewed out? Has anyone ever read you the riot act? Maybe at work, maybe at school. Maybe it was at home by your parents or maybe your spouse. But has anyone ever just kind of let you have it when you deserve it? There are many times that we've been chewed out in our lives when we probably didn't deserve it, but the ones that stick with me the most are the ones when I did. Because we kind of realize something's wrong and we need to fix it. We kind of have this moment in our lives when we learn that everything's not going right, someone has noticed, and things have to change. But whatever the reason we're being chewed out, it hopefully drove us to realize where we could be better. Now, the church of Laodicea is being chewed out. I didn't come up here to chew you out this morning, I promise. But the church of Laodicea is being chewed out by Christ. They are being read the riot act, and it should galvanize them and us to come out of complacency and to live passionate lives for our Lord. So this morning, we'll see that to live passionately for Christ we must look to the faithful witness, receive a stern rebuke, and remember the joy of fellowship. This morning, uh, well, first we see in verse 14, we look to the faithful witness. Now the first three verses of Revelation are the Apostles John's his greeting to these seven churches and that the book is being written to, and it's a description of Jesus. He has these visions of Christ, and these are the messages that Jesus is sending to these individual churches. 
The church of Laodicea is the last of the seven churches that is getting a letter. Each letter begins with this description of Jesus, and it's usually taken from chapter 1, and it specifically deals with the situation that the church is in. The seventh letter also begins with a description of Christ, but it is not taken from Revelation 1, but Isaiah 65, verse 16, specifically where Jesus is called the Amen. Now, Amen is a common word in the church. We use it every Sunday. We probably use it every day. Whenever we pray, we use it at the end of our prayers. That was the common use of it from both the Old and the New Testament. But what does Amen, or Amen, however we say it, what does that mean? What does that word actually mean? If you ask a child, they'd probably say, the end, or they would probably say, my prayer is over. But that's not the case. Amen means truth, trustworthy. Let it be true. But, or in Isaiah 65, verse 16, God is called the God of truth twice. Jesus is being identified as the God of the covenant and the God of truth. But see, it doesn't just have Old Testament significance. We read this morning 2 Corinthians, 2, verse, uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. It says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. He is, the, he is the stamp that says everything that God promised in the Old Testament is true. And everything in the Old Testament that God promised will come true. And it has come to pass except for the return of our Lord. So, Jesus is the Amen because he faithfully and trustworthily fulfilled the law of God. He faithfully fulfilled the promises for Israel to have a Messiah. He is, again, the fulfillment of the promise that our sins would be paid for and our sins would be taken away and that God would make this world new and dwell with us. He says that he is the faithful and the true witness in verse 14. This is a continuation of that amen thought. He says, and a witness is someone who testifies to the truth of something. That word is the word for martyr, but it doesn't mean uh, to die for your faith. That was the meaning that it came to have. But this means that Jesus is testifying to the truth of God's word, and he's doing it in our place. Jesus amens the law of God where we could not. He does this as our covenant Lord. It is, though, it is though Christ, as the faithful and true witness, he is fulfilling the requirements of the law, of God's law, so that we are able to have redemption, which is accomplished through his blood. He has fulfilled the law for us. The point is made clearer when Jesus says in verse 14, says that he is the beginning of God's creation. Now we know from the rest of Scripture, especially places like Colossians 1 and John 1, that Jesus Christ is not created. He is God. And he has created all things. In fact, John 1, 3 tells us there is nothing that was made that was not made by the hands of Christ. The Father decreed and the Son created. This does not mean that Jesus was the first creation, but that he is the source of creation. That he brought all things into existence because he is the Son of God. But he is not just the source of creation. He's a source of recreation as well. He is the one who lived, died, and was raised for our salvation. It is through the work of Christ that we are given a new heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that we are made new creations. It is because of Christ's work God will create a new world. He will recreate this world for us to live on and be with Him 
Christ is the source of the new creation. This is a wonderful reminder of who Christ is. The people in Laodicea needed to be reminded of who Jesus was. They had lost sight of who he was. And it is so, so easy for us to forget who God is. We are so quick to be caught up in the day-to-day things of our lives that we forget that we serve a mighty and a wonderful God. We, f- we forget to see who Christ is, so we must take a moment to pause and to remember who he is, that he is the true covenant God that came down to this earth and lived a perfect life and died an atoning death and was raised for our salvation. That is the Lord that saved us. You see, that is the greatest thing that will ever shake people out of apathy for God, that will ever galvanize and motivate us to worship him, is to remember who he is, to remember who he is and what he has done for us. The greatest way to see who God is is to see him in the person of his son. Christ says that if we have seen him, we have seen the Father. Let us have a clear and brighter vision of our Lord through his word. As we talked about with the children, have you ever had something that you were very passionate about? Maybe it was a sports team, maybe it was a hobby, or maybe it was a television show, whatever, or maybe it was a favorite toy. But whatever it was, I'm sure we all have things that we could say, yes, I'm very passionate about that. Have you ever lost interest in it? One day it was the thing you were all about, and then another day, poof, it's gone. You don't care about it anymore. It's happened to all of us. All of us, if we thought back through our lives, we could, look at, we could look and think about something that we just don't have an interest in anymore. Maybe it was because the passion faded. Maybe it was because it's, something is getting in the way, work's getting in the way, and we have to buckle down and work harder. Maybe it's because we don't have the time to get away and spend time in that hobby. Whatever it is, we lost interest. What got us interested again in our hobby? What got us interested again in the thing that we loved? We remembered why we were passionate about it. We remembered what was so great about it. It's the same way with the Lord. Oftentimes, we can forget who Jesus is. We can forget what he has done for us. We can forget the reasons why we should be passionately motivated to serve and love him. Remembering who he is is a great reminder of why we should be passionate for Christ. So we should look to the faithful witness. Christ has not changed. He has become no less of the Savior than he was the day that we came to faith. We must look to him and see what in our lives we have prioritized before him, and we have to trim the fat. We have to see what takes our time, energy, and passion away from God, and we must regulate those things. We need to ask him to infuse us with the passion that filled us in days past. So we see, the, we look to the faithful witness, and secondly, we, re- we receive a stern rebuke. Look with me at verses 15 through 18. Jesus begins his examination of the church by reminding them that he has full knowledge of their works. Jesus is not deceived by them. He has perfect knowledge of everything that they have done. Jesus says that they are neither cold nor hot. Now, the city of Laodicea was an extremely wealthy city, but they were not in a great place for water. They had to pipe in all the water that they got from a place called Heropolis. And that place was known for the hot springs that had a medicinal effect. And so Laodicea would pipe the water down to them. Now, to the south of Laodicea was a city called Colossae. Colossae was a town in which Paul established a church. They had cold springs that were known for their life-giving effect. 
They had pure water, and they gave refreshment to the people. But by the time the water came from Heropolis to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And anyone that's ever had lukewarm water knows it is gross. It is disgusting, and it causes you to want to spit it out. And in fact, the water in Laodicea induced vomiting to the people. And so Jesus says, since you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says, you taste like lukewarm water. That's why Jesus says this. And he says that the people have lost their effectiveness for the gospel. Had they been like the cold springs, they would have given life to the people. They would have given life to the unbelievers in their town. Had they been like the hot water of Heropolis, they would have given spiritual medicine of the gospel to the people. They had lost their passion for God's word. The unbelievers in Laodicea were suffering, suffering in spiritual death and darkness because the church had lost their passion to spread the gospel. Not only that, but they were deluded about their situation. They thought they were all right. In verse 17, look with me. Christ tells the people that they say they are rich, they have prospered, and they have need of nothing. The city, again, was a wealthy city. They were at the, they were at the, the junction of three major roads. And they, so it made it a center of trade and commerce. There was an earthquake that wrecked the town. And they were so wealthy that they refused help from the Roman government. They said, we don't need it. We got this one covered. They were wealthy, and they were proud of it. And verse 17 shows us that they took their material wealth as a sign of spiritual blessing. They said they were rich. They had need of nothing. They believe that God is pleased with their works. Jesus says it is the opposite. Jesus says that they are wretched, poor, pitiable, blind, and naked. And the worst part is they don't even know it. They don't even realize it. These Christians have a terrible grasp on their spiritual situation. They are unable to see just how much they have slipped towards the sinful culture that they are living in. Their witness is either non-existent or it's ineffectual. While there's nothing wrong with being wealthy, the way that the Laodiceans would have gotten their wealth raises a little bit of questions. At this time, if you wanted to be part of a successful business in the Roman world, you had to be part of a, spirit, of a guild. And these guilds had gods that were their patrons. So you had to at least go to the worship service of a pagan god. You had to at least go and offer lip service to these gods. They are not like the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna refused to participate in these things, and so they were poor because of it. They didn't have all the wealth that Laodicea had. The people in Laodicea seemed to be willing to participate in idolatry, even if it's insincere for their economic well-being. Again, they seem to be apathetic to the gospel because of their self-sufficiency, they've forgotten exactly how much they need God. These Laodiceans are without persecution because they look like the world around them. The gospel has lost its offensiveness because they are not, they're either not preaching it or they're not living it effectively. The gospel is an offensive message, not because we seek, we seek to offend the people around us, but if you go up to someone because you love them and you tell them the gospel, which says that we are sinners and that we need someone to save us and we can do nothing to save ourselves, that's offensive. And these people, these Laodiceans, if they had been faithful witnesses, they would have had persecution. 
because they would have refused to have been a part of idolatry and they would have looked different from the world around them. This is why Christ tells them in verse 18 to buy from him gold that is refined by fire. In Scripture, that's a symbol for a life purified by the Holy Spirit. God had, gold had to be refined to get the impurities out of it. And this is what these people need. In the same way, our lives must be purified by the Holy Spirit through trials and through suffering. That's why we go through those, so we can, be, so we can have the process of sanctification take place in our lives. Christ tells them to buy eye salve because the Laodiceans, they were famous for their eye hospital. They had this salve that took away, that sometimes cured blindness. They cured all sorts of eye problems. And Jesus says, you need that kind of spiritual salve because you can't see your own condition. You don't have any spiritual discernment, Jesus is telling them. And they must gain it. See, we are to call on Christ to give us these things because we can't get them through our effort. We can try as we might, but if we're spiritually deluded, we will always think that we are good. We need to ask Christ to show us our real condition. See, many times in our lives, we think things are going very well. We think that things are going great. In fact, I had one of those situations when I was working with Caroline's father uh, doing landscaping. We would go and we would put bands on trees so that the, the worms wouldn't eat the leaves, they would get stuck in the bands. It's all very fascinating. But what we would do is we would put those on and then we would have to go and take them off. And we were driving along, me and the guy who was working with me, and we were going our route, doing our thing. I thought we were doing great. And, had, and I thought we were ahead of schedule. And then I get a call from Stuart, Caroline's dad, and I tell him where we are. And then he says, why are you there? I gave you a route to follow and you are not going to get done on time. And I thought, oh, Things are not going as good as I thought they were. And I looked to the guy next to me and I said, all right, we're getting all of this done because I'm not going back and saying I didn't finish to uh, my girlfriend's dad. And so we, we did all the work, but I thought everything was going great. I thought everything was fine. Turns out I was very deluded about how good I was doing. In the same way, we can be deluded. We, our spiritual walk can be not where we think that it is, and sometimes we need a rebuke from Christ to show us things aren't going as well as you think. You need to lean on me more. So will we receive that rebuke this morning? When we examine our lives, there are all places that we could grow. There are all places that we look more like the world than we do Christ. And so we must ask him to change us. We want to be life-giving to the people. We want to be spiritual medicine to the unbelievers in our town. And so we must ask him for a faith that is purified. By trials. We must ask Christ for the strength to resist the temptation to compromise what we believe and to stand firm in a world that is increasingly against him. This morning the call is to look on Christ and ask him to help us place him as our first priority. So thirdly and finally, we see that we look to the faithful witness, we receive a stern rebuke, and we remember the joy of fellowship. Look with me at verses 19 through 22. There's a shift in the tone of Jesus. Again, he's been chewing them out. And then he shifts in verse 19. He says, To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. He tells them this chastisement and this discipline is due to his love for them. And this is also a key verse for the Laodiceans. Because here's what we learn about them. They're Christians. They're not unbelievers. 
They're not a church filled with people that don't love God. They're a church filled with people that need to have their passion stoked again. That's important for us because these are the children of the living God. When we feel the discipline in our lives, we must remember that's a sign that we are Christians. When we feel the weight of our sin against God and we receive God's discipline, we must remember that means I am his child. While this fellowship that is strained by our sin, nevertheless, it's fellowship. And that is what we should hold on to. But the discipline of Christ drives us, as we're told in verse 19, to be zealous and repent. To be zealous means to be earnest. Uh, Jesus says that they need to have, go away from dispassionate service and be passionate people of God once more. It's this zealousness, this passion that drives us to repent, that drives us to ask Christ to forgive us. When we see who Christ is, the faithful witness to God's promises, when we realize what our situation truly is, we should be quick to repent. We should be quick to run to him and ask him to forgive us. See, if our passion doesn't burn and cause us to repent, then we show something about ourselves. We show that we're not as concerned as we thought. In verse 20, we're given another reason why we should repent. Christ tells, them, Christ tells us that he stands at the door and he knocks. This is a verse that is it's a classic verse. We all know this verse. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, the call is to do that this morning. The call is to turn to him and repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. But if you have, if this morning you call yourself a Christian, then there is a different call for us. Again, these people are Christians. These are people that, the, that Christ loves, and Jesus says he is standing at the door, he is calling, he is knocking. He is initiating the call to renewed fellowship. He finds us where we are, and he wants to come in and have fellowship. Now, going in and eating with someone in the ancient Near East, it had huge implications. I mean, if we have someone over to our house in our culture, that means that we're friends with them. It was a far more intimate thing to go and eat at someone's house in Israel. They had a table that would be long, and they would lay down and recline together, and they would be so close that their elbows were touching. It was a very close setting. Jesus says, that's how close I want to be with you again. I want to be in that close fellowship with my people. But we must cast off our concerns about what people think, concerns about all these things that make us walk away from the gospel and lean on Christ. Verse 21, Christ promises another benefit of fellowship. It's a familiar phrase, and it's found in all six of the other letters to the church. It says, the one who conquers. That's a phrase for living out the faithful Christian life. Jesus says that to those who live out as a faithful witness through the power of the Spirit, they will sit with him on his throne. We are granted to rule and to reign with Jesus. That's a big deal. We are granted to be with him in the new creation, just as Christ is ruling by his Father's side. There's a, par there's a parallel to what Christ has done and to what he is doing through us. It's through Christ that the power of the Spirit is able to help us to conquer this world, to live out the faithful Christian life. Paul tells us in eight, Romans 8 and Galatians 4 that we are heirs with Christ. God has, through our salvation, giving us, given us the blessing of being a child of God. We can walk and we have daily communion and fellowship with Him. And that is what He wants for us. He wants us to not have strained fellowship with Him, 
but close, intimate communion because we are walking in daily repentance and daily forgiveness by our Savior. So what drives you? What gets you through to the end of the day? There's a lot of things that make us want to go home and prop up our feet, but maybe it's getting to watch TV. Maybe it's a chance to come home to your spouse and your children. Maybe it's being able to provide for your family that drives you. Maybe it's a bowl of ice cream. Whatever motivates you, that's the thing that gets you to the end of the day. It gets you, and you're able to go out that day to work, do a great job, and to come home, because that is what is driving you. Christ should be what drives us to be a faithful witness in this world. Communion with Christ on earth is practice for our eternal communion with him in the new creation. And lastly, verse 22. Verse 22 is a call to belief. Jesus says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This morning, the Spirit is speaking to us. This morning, the Spirit speaks to us through the Word of God. But we hear the voice of our Good Shepherd. And when we live a passionate life of fellowship and intimacy with our Lord. If you've never received Christ, be shaken from your apathy. Put your faith in Him. Repent and believe. If you have, then we must run to Him in fellowship. So this morning, will we run to Him when we walk through those doors the same as we did when we entered them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.